0: Say hello to our friends in Berlin. Guten
1: in Berlin. I got some good comments. One guy said, fun,
0: more please. <laughs> People are just never satisfied. Anyway, welcome back. I'm glad we're all here, that uh, we survived <laughs> the Oscars. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what were some of your impressions of the show this year, Pam?
2: I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's I actually enjoyed it more than I have in a, in a long time, and I think that it's because there wasn't as many shenanigans. I'm always a big opponent of trying to cater to the masses and unnecessary you know montages and random things and there were the occasional montage and you know there was the Girl Scout cookies selling (laughs) but I enjoyed that part but I I don't know I really enjoyed it I thought the smaller awards there was one year where all the smaller categories the audience the people the nominees didn't even get to go up on stage like they basically accepted their award in the audience I want to say this was like five or six years ago and so there's there's none of that it was you know it was dignified, and I liked it.
3: Do you think the, the controversy led to a little bit of the lack of shenanigans, the usual shenanigans, because they had to take it a little more seriously in light of the controversy?
1: I don't know. I just found the whole thing crass and dull as usual. How were the gowns? They just hit the uh, controversy over and over. I mean, it just got like, oh, let's hear another joke about race. You know, it was
3: just, uh I have to admit that in spite of my raving how much I love the Oscars, I missed the Oscars this year. <laughs> <laughs> I was driving back from Anaheim during the entire time and I was keeping track over uh, when we got coverage, but uh, I took the kids to Disneyland. And since I was already going to the KKK, <laughs> the KKK rally, I figured might as well take him to Disneyland. Oh my
0: goodness! You should have taken Pam along as a tour guide. She's she's an is expert. She, is she at I Disneyland? Am,
3: yeah. I well uh, anyway. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm well, gonna recover. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Chris mentioned the jokes, and, and I know Chris Rock has been called to the carpet a couple times now on social media for some of the jokes involving the little kids who came out. Well, Did yeah. that stick out to you at the time, is seeming off?
2: Well, th- this is the thing. It did kind of stick out at the time, but I think he immediately diffused it by saying, well, you guys are going to get all angry about this joke on an iPhone that was built by these little kids, which is exactly right on. Like, people get incredibly angry about these kind of things, but then, you know, they get angry on their smartphones, which are... Built, Built by sweat. slave labor. Exactly, in sweatshops, usually, you know, sometimes by children. And so it, it's he pointed out the hypocrisy about getting angry about that joke, and I completely agree with him on that point.
1: He had some funny ones, and, and I think people get offended too easily. The thing about lynching, I mean, people got mad afterwards that you're, he was making fun of lynching, but the fact is that the there are a lot of people who don't understand the extent of lynching, and the severity of the problem and how pervasive it was mm-hmm. and so the joke was kind of like this wake-up call i thought so i thought that was pretty pretty good i mean there were some highlights some uh, mark rylance winning supporting actor mm-hmm. he was very yeah. he, these english actors somehow know how to make a speech unlike a lot of the american ones and then um
2: could wear a good hat, too.
1: There, the bear was there, and he was applauding from uh, <laughs> one of the uh, balconies when The Revenant won for uh, Best Director.
0: <laughs> That's nice they invited him.
1: And uh, you'll be happy to know that Mad Max, it was just like there was a whole hour where it was just Mad Max, Mad Max, mm-hmm. all the technical stuff. And yep. I was going to bring that up, and there was a little bit and of And the music for er- Ennio Morricone, mm-hmm. which was very moving to see him get an Oscar, to win an Oscar. Never mind. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No,
0: it's fine. You know, I think Ineo Marconi, it's good he was there because otherwise he would have been home writing another six or seven movie scores. So it was good (laughs) that they got him out of his house for a little while. (laughs) I mean, in his, let's, uh, you know, I'll put that in context, that in his prime, he was overly prolific, I would say. And uh, now, of course, he's slowed down a bit and is choosier about his projects.
3: Now just prolific.
0: (laughs) Not just prolific. Now now just prolific. Now he's just prolific. Yeah. What about the slight social media controversy that's come up now about the costume designer for Mad Max coming up to accept oh. her award? Oh,
2: uh, well, this is this is interesting to me that this has become a controversy again when at the Baftas 2 weeks ago It was a controversy because Stephen Fry uh, made a joke about it, about how, like, oh, well, you know, you're at a gala, basically, and you dress like a bag lady. Or he made some comment like that, and people got really offended on social media. And then it turns out that he was good friends with her, and so he was kind of saying it out of a friendship thing, which I still – I didn't love the comment. I still think it was slightly inappropriate because a lot of us didn't know that Stephen Fry was a good friend of hers. But what was interesting to me was how that was kind of a huge controversy in England, and then it kind of faded away, and then yet again it came up. I loved what she had on, and I, you know, don't think that she should be
0: She was wearing a, like a sequined leather jacket. And, yeah. And, you know, basically kind of dressed like an Australian biker. Well, I,
2: th- I think the, you know, the more – the thing that people are less okay with is just the fact that it's an older woman who – dare to be an older woman you know it's like she she didn't do the Helen Mirren thing where she gets all dressed up and gussied up and puts her hair up she dressed like she normally would and you know if it was like a young 20 year old they would have been like oh look at that rocker chick but because she's older she doesn't get away with it as much so
1: I think it was a manufactured controversy I looked at the tape and I I don't I just think people are doing what they're doing they're not necessarily not clapping on purpose I think people are just looking for things Furthermore, if you're the costume designer
0: for Mad Max, you know, that's the right thing to
1: wear.
2: Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, she did say in a comment that she felt she looked ridiculous in a gown, that she wouldn't even think of wearing one because that's not her style.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um,
0: The larger controversy that I was really referring to was not over so much how she was dressed, though, but as Chris touched on, the fact that a lot of the men in the audience didn't applaud. And Inuritu and his kind of crew, who I'm sure were rooting for The Revenant, didn't respond positively to her walking up the aisle right past them you know there was a lot of people who seemed their reaction seemed to be muted but since i didn't watch the show for all i know they did that during acceptance so So shut up yeah i mean i'm sure they're concentrating on okay we didn't get this one what's the next one we're up for you know yeah all that kind of thing.
3: just sounds like bad sportsmanship (laughs)
0: <laughs> right on. <laughs> you yeah. sounded so meek. <laughs> um, the other cool thing she said in her acceptance speech was, though, she said, "I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think that Mad Max may be prophetic, and that we need to watch what we're doing." I don't, I'm going to paraphrase here, but we need to, you know, quit polluting the planet. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And um, that, you know, got lukewarm response. Whereas I think Pam makes a great point. If Angelina Jolie had said it, well, she would have gotten a standing ovation.
2: Leo also brought that up in his acceptance speech, and his was, um, again, it was Leo, and I think everybody was just so happy that he had gotten an Oscar that I think, you know, people were just so excited about what he had to say, but he basically said the same exact thing in his acceptance speech, and more people are commenting on his speech than hers. But I think that that might be for, you know, just because it's Leonardo DiCaprio, I don't necessarily think it's...
0: Yeah, otherwise they'd have to explain who she was to everyone who was reading the article. Exactly. As a James Bond fan, I was pretty uh, excited that a song from a Bond movie mm-hmm. got an Oscar. I was disappointed on the grounds that it's probably the worst James Bond song <laughs> in <Yep>. 25 <laughs> years. <Yeah>. Uh, <laughs> um, oh,
3: I'm glad you qualified that. I,
0: I would go back to Madonna's Die Another Day Ooh. for a Cheryl competitor. Crow. Well, Cheryl that, that was even before that. Okay. But yeah, yeah there have there definitely been some duds. Probably, yeah over the years. But Sam Smith gave it his all and he he commented afterwards that he had only really sung that song once in the studio mm-hmm. that it wasn't even, you know, something it wasn't in his wheelhouse so mm-hmm. to speak. And now I understand that because of all the negative response he's gotten, he says he's quit Twitter, yeah. which a lot of people are quitting social media these days, which I appreciate.
2: Well, as I was going, <laughs> I was saying earlier about Stephen Fry, Stephen Fry quit Twitter also because of his Mad Max costume comment, you know, he ended up quitting Twitter after that too. Um. Yeah, it gets. It, Twitter causes a lot of angst.
1: I mean, people have too much time on their hand. Why be so mean?
2: Yeah. Over
1: what? Yeah. <laughs> Some ceremony. It's ridiculous. Didn't you have a a quote about what you thought Twitter was like? I was addicted to Twitter. I had to get off of it in order to write, but it was like a cocktail party where everybody where I, I followed people that were interesting, and so it was like mm-hmm. a cocktail party where everybody's talking at once. And it's fun. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of jokes and snark Mm -hmm. and news and interesting stuff. I love Twitter. I do too. But there are a lot of trolls and idiots on Mm -hmm. Twitter too. And you have to like block them.
3: Well, I I still haven't figured out how to actually make it work. (laughs) 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 I I opened a Twitter account and uh, have Twitter – I guess, but I, I guess I could just go ahead and quit. It wouldn't make any difference. I'd <laughs> no one the, would notice. The, 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 throng, the, the, uh, the, the throng of, of, of twitters.
0: <laughs> well, it does have twit in the name, right? I'm sure I'm not the first person to point that out.
3: Yeah. So. I, I won't repeat it, but I, I like the Stephen Colbert's past tense of, of tweeting.
0: Do you think that any uh, major changes are going to be implemented on the Academy Awards? Due to anything that happened this year was well, there
2: they already talked about what was going, what was changing and, um the president of the academy came out and she stated what they were, the changes they were making and the changes that had already been taken you know they talked about how if you're if you haven't worked in the last 10 years even if you're a, a member of the academy you're not allowed to vote anymore if you're not currently working people have kind of a short memory but there was a you know a while back when this controversy happened i think again when chris rock was supposed to be hosting um You know when Oscar so white was trending this year everybody was pointing out that this was also trending last year too and then five or six years ago or whenever it was that Chris Rock hosted previously again people were making the point about how there were more black nominees that year than in combined in the last 20 or something and so it's a controversy that keeps getting brought up again and again and
3: are they going to implement Chris Rock's idea about having a black category (laughs) <laughs>
2: he, he made a good point about that. But he he brought up that it's kind of pointless that there is um, a best female and best male because it's not a physical competition. You know, this isn't track and field. Like, why is Tom Hardy, you know, not going up against Brie Larson? Like, they're they're all actors. Now I'd and, pay to see that. <laughs>
1: I would too. Yeah, um. I remember back <laughs> when. Uh, You know, The Color Purple was nominated for Best Picture, and there was, like, a lot of anger that it ended up losing to Out of Africa, which is kind of symbolic, which is this white woman. A very white story about Africa. Africa.
0: And uh, so it's, you know, this has been coming back over the years. You know, I understand that Oscar Isaac is not too keen on that Oscar so white hashtag.
3: (laughs) (laughs) He is from Guatemala. Guatemala. I did I did uh, uh, like the idea of Jack Black uh, being celebrated for Black History Month <laughs> <laughs> So <clears throat> we now
0: uh, have exploited our Oscar talk and we have absolutely nothing else to talk about
3: So does anyone have a topic? Well uh, can we talk about pure cinema Explain to me what pure cinema is, and let's decide. I'm I'm, afraid. Jumpi- yep. I'm jumping ahead to the to. I just rewatched uh, Wong Kar Wai's uh, In the oh. Mood for Love. Oh yeah. And this, I was like, oh, well, this is going to be the movie I talk about that it influenced me. But I, it, I don't know if it's a cheat since I've seen it several times. But watching it again just reminds me how amazing the potential for cinema can be. And it's one of the films that comes closest to pure cinema, which is the idea of just using what cinema can do in only cinema. And that's, I think, the idea, and usually also, really the the simple way to say it is that people rarely talk. (laughs) (laughs) It is a very visual movie. Yeah. Do you have some insight on what the definition of pure
0: cinema means to you, Chris?
1: Absolutely not. Great. (laughs) Great. Um, I mean, I love in in the mood for love, and I love Wong Kar Wai, mm-hmm. and I can see how his films are considered forward looking because he uh, bends the narrative um, paradigm. You know, he doesn't really just go with beginning, middle, and end, but he his films seem more like he's experimenting with time and with uh, feeling. And
3: but I don't have a ready made uh, definition of pure cinema for you. Yes. Well, it actually, that just reminded me why I thought of it, because it reminded me of your film last, uh, last time. Uh, <laughs> the Beast of Yucca Flats. The Beast of Yucca Flats, with the tone poem of loneliness. And I said, oh, my God, he's right. Wong Kar Wai and the Beast of Yucca Flats. I wonder if, if it influenced him for, <laughs> for, for the movie for love. <laughs> he would probably
0: enjoy it based on what I know about him. I'll tell you a Wonkar Y film I know I've seen, and it's only one minute long. He participated in the Lumiere project, where they gave one of the original Lumiere film cameras to several different directors, probably about 50. They actually took the same camera around and toured between them, and I think I even talked about this in our first show, which no one's heard yet, um, about Merchant Ivory uh, participating in that and doing something that I thought was very witty and, and, and cool of the makers of Out of Africa. But uh, Wong Kar Wise is a um, very traditional setting on top of the Great Wall of China where you see a man and a woman in traditional dress. By that I mean, I guess, like 19th century Chinese dress. And uh, they walk towards each other and they they bow and they go through certain sort of polite motions. And then suddenly they rip off their outer costumes as fast as they can. And underneath it, they're both a completely modern Chinese couple wearing a leather jacket with punk rock hair and they dance.
3: To Nirvana. (laughs) Actually. (laughs) Wow. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I loved it.
2: What do we think of the sequel, well, quote unquote sequel to In the Mood for Love, the futuristic one that had the number?
1: 2046, I think. Yes. Yeah. It was quite good. It wasn't as good. Yeah. But it was still very immersive and poetic and great music and just beautiful like most of his films are.
2: Yeah, I, I liked it. I, I I made the mistake of watching that before I saw In the Mood for Love, and so I I still need to go back and rewatch it, because um, I think I missed a lot of what I was supposed to be seeing. Um, but I just liked how it just hopped between different times. Like it was basically, it wasn't so much a time travel movie, but it was it flipped between current time and the past and then sometime in the distant future and all revolved I think I believe the number was the hotel room number or something that's
0: right yeah when you say it was sort of a sequel is it just a spiritual sequel or is it the characters and storyline continue
2: it's very abstract and I believe it's supposed to feature some of the same characters if well I the
1: one to see
3: is in the movie for love I mean, it's one of the greatest films. It is yeah. one um, of the greatest films I think ever made, and I know um, I'm I'm using uh, hyperbole here, but I'm a I'm a big fan of hyperbole. No, wait, I'm a huge fan <laughs> <laughs> of hyperbole. You are the biggest user of hyperbole that I know.
0: You take it to a Trumpian level. You kind of oh. overdo oh. it, actually, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, then I guess this is at the top of my list. I
3: guess I have to see this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in, in, in just going back to the idea of pure cinema, This, I think it's, uh, again, that what, c- what can cinema do that none of the other arts can pull off and the I, I think it's you know focusing on the visual storytelling abilities rather than just filming a conversation or filming jokes like a like you know what you see with a, an apatow film which i enjoy apatow films but <laughs> when i wa- look at the camera work and think boy um yeah they're not y- cinematic yeah it, it's it, it is true you, you really only need to know a few camera setups if you have a good a good screenplay and uh and get good performances, uh, it, but the, the the people that I truly end up, you know, really thinking this is why I love cinema are the are the ones like Kar Wai who are capable of doing so much more and elevating it to, you know, a, a true art form. You know, I mean, cinema is made from all the other arts, but but only once in a while does it get to that point where, boy, this could this is could only happen in cinema.
0: I think uh, I learned something last time from you, uh, a quote from Hitchcock, that editing is the essence of cinema.
3: Yeah, and he does, I think he said that after he made his attempt with Rope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is a movie I like a lot, actually. But, but, I wasn't uh,
0: sure what you were implying last time. He,
3: he, was, he was just disappointed with the results of Rope. It, he considered it an ex- a failed experiment, and he said he's, he realized that, that editing is the essence of cinema. Maybe it's because Rope just comes across as so stagey. And I don't know why he felt that way, because <laughs> I've never <laughs> met him. But but I mean, this, this is what I've read, and, and I think that was, in fact, with the conversations with Truffaut, I think is one of the, one that one that I read that one. Um, and you know maybe he was, feeling you know pushed by Truffaut, and, and 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 I think that was part of his relationship with Truffaut, was Truffaut was, uh, you know, one of the first people he encountered that was really talking about him as an artist. And then he was like, oh, well, that rope thing, you know.
1: (laughs) Now, recently, there was that German film, Victoria, which I think was the first time I've seen a single-shot film that actually succeeded as a fiction film. Um, And I was very impressed. I mean, it had its problems, but basically it followed this woman in Berlin in the early hours of the morning, which I later figured out that must have been why they did that, because you could shoot better in the streets of Berlin when Mm. it was four in the morning and she runs into these guys who are first you're afraid for her and then it turns out that they're nice guys but later they make some very bad decisions and it turns into a suspense film and a thriller and it's amazing the whole thing is actually done in one shot and it has a plot and it has good acting and um, it's quite moving so that's a case where somebody transcended the gimmicky nature of it.
3: I, I avoided it because of the gimmick. I I said, oh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna see it. Then I heard uh, that it was, you know, that it, I shouldn't avoid it. That it was actually <laughs> that it was actually to success successful. Did you Did you see Russian Ark?
1: I did, and I liked Russian Ark. But it's not really a fiction film. It's no. more like just like a a parade, a panoply of scenes yeah. through the um, Hermitage in Saint Petersburg. And for what it is, it's fascinating, but. This is actual, as a story with a plot and with suspense and everything. And I found out later that they filmed it three times and the director picked the one he liked best. If you can imagine wow. doing that and how hard it is to do everything without
0: flubbing a line or. And so when you say he picked the one he liked best, you mean he didn't do any intercutting between the three versions. Well, it's the whole idea is that it's one shot. You can't do intercutting. Agreed, if you're being honest about it. Um, on the, the Netflix TV show Daredevil this last year, mm-hmm. there was a fight scene that really got up a lot of attention because it was done in what seemed to be one continuous take. But there were moments when the actors left the room, however briefly, and that was used as an edit point. So the filmmakers never said they did it in one take. They were open about how the, the process... Sure, the and I mean Birdman
1: did the same thing, yeah. where it would right. you'd look up in the sky and then it would get to be morning. And yeah. And the rope, in fact, he had to, because of the nature of the medium at the time, he had yeah. to like have somebody walk in front of the camera for the next reel to start. Yeah. Now with video, you don't have to have a next reel, and this was shot completely through three different times, and the director chose the best one, and it's rather astounding. Is it I mean, it's not a perfect film, but it's really s- something to see.
3: And it certainly saves time in the editing room. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: I'm sure the time spent rehearsing and preparing was pretty gruesome They couldn't smoke grueling, even more cigarettes I, I really almost don't see the point of it I, it's, it's, just, well, it's just, again, it's like, oh, look what I can do But the story,
1: actually, you get to the point where you're not even paying attention to that it's one shot anymore Because it fits so well with the way the story is The, the intensity and the suspense of it really fits with the style with the one shot style I thought it worked and
3: that's what I've heard I've heard nothing but good things about it it's just well then quit complaining
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, some of my favorite shots in films sometimes are the really well orchestrated single shot takes I mean those those can be thrilling and sometimes you're not even sure why you're so thrilled you know, until you l- go back and look, and you realize, oh wow, that was all done at once. Uh, Brian De Palma did one, and Carrie. That's yeah. really cool.
3: I get excited by those <coughs> those things as well, and the, the technical virtuosity of it all. Uh-huh. But I've also, over the years, have have learned not to get excited about those, at least in my own filmmaking, because most people don't care. Most people could, <laughs> you know, could care less about how hard it was to shoot that. Yeah. Um. They want to know if are they want to ha- be. Caught up in the story, and, and and I mean, I'm not saying I want to make an artless film, or or, or no, don't worry about the visuals and the impact of that. That is, in fact, why I make films. Is I came in it from the visual side of things, having over a course of four films, four feature films, learned that in the end, some of the my favorite shots were the simplest ones to get, and they're sometimes the most impactful, and uh, and that the editing, you know, really does a lot of work for you. And I'm a big fan of Kuleshov, you know, <laughs> and Eisenstein, and what what and 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 that is part of uh, what cinema is. Now I understand, you know, you're also a jazz fan, and and <laughs> and and for me to, again with music technical virtuosity leaves me cold. I I yes. don't know enough about music to really. Appreciate how difficult it is. You shouldn't have to. And I, I yeah, I, I, agree. And I, but I really wish they would quit showing off and play a song. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: Robert and I have discussed this before because, as art lovers, we—that is one thing we disagree on. And all I can say—and I'm not saying this like all I can say to you, you idiot—but <laughs> <clears throat> all I can say, Robert, is <laughs> that um, I have come away from a great piece of music or a great jazz album with the same satisfaction and excitement that I've come away from any piece of art.
3: But you're also a musician. I'm and a so drummer though. <laughs> 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 We're the guys who hang around with this them. actually ties into a, a larger
1: historical issue in cinema, which is the contrast between montage and what they call maison scene. Oh
4: yeah.
1: And montage for the longest time was that was it. I mean you had a fixed camera, it didn't move very much, and you edited. And that was really how film grew into something more than just actualities where you're just shooting things. But eventually people started looking at the possibilities of the moving camera and being able to see within a scene or within a set or a a landscape different actions going on that you didn't have to cut for. And my personal opinion is that the two of them go together. You can't really exclusively rely on either one of them without kind of denying yourself um, some some good technique
3: yeah throwing it off kilter well and that's one of the things you know Citizen Kane is so revered for was the the use of the the depth of uh, field that uh, you know that deep focus cinematography being able to stage multiple things happening at the same time and I watched Citizen Kane a lot uh and uh it's a young Orson Welles Showing off a little yeah. bit, yeah, and, yeah it and, is. And, and it is, and it is. He's also relying very much on his theatrical background. Yeah. you know, not his. He, he did not really have a cinema background at all at that point. I mean, which is all the more amazing how you know great the film is. But it is a very theatrical uh, technique, not a cinema technique. Now part of it
1: you have to understand though is that before Wells did that, most of movie Hollywood movie making had the seamless style where you did not see anybody showing off anything. It was meant to be not noticed. and So he deliberately turned that around and decided to show off. And that's kind of why it's such a bold, different thing and why it was so important at the time. But now it's sort of like, well, we've seen it,
3: we know it. So it
1: doesn't seem as innovative as it did then.
3: Well, uh, I mean, Andre Bazin would go so far as to call it more democratic. Him and the other uh, Cahiers de Cinema uh, critics who loved and revered Wells so much, that was part of the reason, that idea that It didn't hide the technique the way, you know, they would classify as bourgeois, the bourgeois Hollywood style of Griffith and and, and the earlier filmmakers that relied on the construction of the of the editing to to be less truthful in Bazan's opinion. You know, so it's a it is a you know, I think people have come to blows over this. (laughs) <laughs> I don't, well, I'm, I don't I'm take ready. one side or the other. <laughs> I love both. I don't
1: see why I have to hate Willie Wyler in order to love Orson Welles. Or, you know, I just yeah. for me,
3: it's. I just read uh, a review about the Revenant, and uh, and uh, one of the f- most f- funniest m- uh, movie nerd quotes I heard was the the reviewer said uh, that uh, Inarritu. Uh, makes Lars Van Trier look like Billy Wilder. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's so humorless. Oh, uh, uh, mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah.
1: I mean, one of the things that this brings up for me, it was a topic I considered, although it's very broad, is that when I first got interested in movies, it wasn't just so that I could watch good movies or learn how they were made, but I got interested in the history of cinema. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that meant that I had to read a lot, but also go back and watch Griffith
0: and Melies, and, and how at yeah. that time, because we're talking many years ago, many. No, it was already. there were already DVDs, DVDs and, DVDs <laughs> and then. all right. well, these things. But sometimes there were bad VHS
1: transfers, and I had to watch some oh, of these yeah. old films on mm. like really pathetic prints. But I still watched them because I wanted to see the film in whatever form I could. You know, von Stroheim sure. or Murnau or something, and all they had was a VHS. I think that's a part of my love of films: is this curiosity about history and how the technique developed. Because unlike any other art form, motion pictures and also photography, we've actually seen in modern times that art form start. And all other yeah. things, uh, literature and music and everything started in the mists of prehistory. And we don't yeah. know exactly what it was, that mm-hmm. how it started. But here we get to see the technique actually being discovered and built and mm-hmm. fashioned over a mere century, mm-hmm. a little over a century. And it's fascinating to me to, to see, for instance, how the close up eventually got used and how people resisted it. And I read a thing in an old um, movie magazine. It was from a book, actually, um, where the critic was complaining that uh, he, he just couldn't accept the fact that in a movie, you'd show somebody whose, bod- whose bottom half of his body was being cut off and he was just, you see the top half of his body. To him, it was un- inconceivable that you didn't see the whole f- human figure moving in the frame and, or in the scene. And we laugh at that now, but it's it took time for audiences to get used to things that movies could do. The editing and the different shots and-
3: I, I heard quotes from, uh, they weren't necessarily studio heads at that point, but the people who owned the companies that were making the early films saying things like, uh, well, we paid for the whole actress, I don't want to just see her face. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: And also what passed for uh, suitable entertainment, like workers leaving the mill, you know, those Mm -hmm. sorts of of films that were uh, curious to watch and are still curious to us, but for different reasons, not because they contain any cinematic quality. They're they're home movies, essentially. Well, that's at the very beginning
3: because
1: people are just so fascinated by just the fact that you could see... Motion pictures at all, that you didn't have to have a story. You just show anything and you pay to see it.
3: It comes down to the two pillars of of cinema that we still have today, which is uh, spectacle and story. And uh, story was virtually non existent at first because the spectacle of just seeing things move was enough to get people to pay the equivalent of $20, $30 to see, you know, 52 second shorts of people leaving the factory or, or the train pulling into the station and that story of them being so overwrought by this train coming at them that people fled the theater, which, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, sounds apocryphal to me, but I, maybe. Uh, yeah, it, it, I, I, I would sort of buy that. Um, I think that
0: there were two things that, that come to mind right away. One is the iconic shot from the great train robbery of mm-hmm. the uh, guy firing the gun towards the camera. Yeah, which mm-hmm. is one
3: of the very first, uh, it's a medium close-up. It's, it is one of the first movies to use that.
0: And in the 1980s, there was a sitcom um, called Sledgehammer on TV. <laughs> and um, in the opening credits, the the show's producers wanted uh, the actor, uh, David Ray who was playing Sledgehammer, to fire right into the camera like that. And the network said, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Someone's going to have a heart attack. Someone's. So this is how, you know, this is yeah. almost a century later, and yeah. people will still, so they eventually compromised by having him shoot at an angle, which really kind of ruins the whole gag. Yeah. So... Um, but, but even the idea was floored, the floated that he would shoot towards the camera and it would crack the screen and um, oh. they didn't like that either like, oh, people don't want their TVs being cracked <laughs> you know <it's,
3: laughs> that's not why people watch television oh, boy. are you crazy <laughs> so and it would get cracked every week too mm-hmm. that's terrible
0: a while back Chris when you wrote about Buniel and uh, the, the short film Un Chin Andalou is that how it's pronounced yeah. think okay. of the Pixies song enough, yeah. No. <laughs> no, I, I don't want to do that. Um, we aired that piece on the radio, and um, Chris didn't really talk about that film, but in the opening, to give uh, Buñuel some context or maybe to you know help the audience realize who we were talking about, I described that scene, and I very quickly said it was the eye of a cow taken from a butcher shop that was used to create the effect. Well, we got a phone call not too long afterwards from somebody who had heard the show, who were sickened by my description of the scene, wow. showing how powerful that scene still is. Yeah. And I know that somewhere out there in the universe, Salvador Dali's mustache was doing this <laughs> <laughs> when that happened, which, which... making a wiggling gesture with two fingers. <laughs> um, nice. Because he, he, that's like the power of that scene is so intense, you still even can't talk about it without somebody uh, having their buttons pushed.
2: Yeah. Well, this is off topic slightly, but I, I exist because of Bunuel. Um I my, would like to hear that story. My parents met at a Boonwell film festival. that was the local. They both went to Indiana University, and huh. my dad was an usher in the theater when they still had ushers in movie theaters. And my mom went to see a Boonwell film festival, and he ushered her to her seat, and then the rest is history. And then <laughs> wow. I, I came along. So. And this was in
0: Elkhart, Indiana?
2: No, I, this was in Bloomington, Indiana. Okay. They later moved to Elkhart.
3: I could not have imagined that you were being literal with that statement. I, uh, yes. I uh, was assuming it was metaphorical. No, nope. so their
1: marriage must have been very uh, surrealistic and uh, bitterly <laughs> ironic, and critical <laughs> of the Catholic Church too.
2: <laughs> I, <nah. laughs> well played, well played.
3: Um, that I- that is a great story. I, I actually really like that. I did. I did just recently read uh, a Bunwell comment uh, uh, that. Uh, he was making fun of the people who found Unchi and Andalu beautiful. He said that was we were. It was a call to murder. <laughs> 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 they said, "What do you have to do? What do you have to do?" <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, the next film they made, Lodge d'Or, uh-huh. was a. It was. It caused a riot. The right wing people heard of it came to the studio uh, the theater and just actually stopped the screening and threw rocks and it was banned after that in in Paris yeah.
0: and a young boy named Igor Stravinsky was almost trampled in the <laughs> <laughs> and now you know the rest of the story <laughs>
3: I, I just love the idea of people having riots over art. It just It's just amazing to me, uh, you know, the Rite of Spring. And, 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 I mean, there was a time when people were upset about paintings, and yeah. it seems so magical. Yeah,
0: it does, that they could care so yeah. much. But, you know, talking to the political cartoonist uh, Fitzsimmons, Dave Fitzsimmons here in Tucson, he talks about how he's he gets virulent letters from people sometimes years after he's done a cartoon. Wow. Someone will cut it out and put it on a bulletin board in a bookstore, and <laughs> someone sees it eight years later and flips out and writes him an angry letter. You know, or Bob Bell, who I actually interviewed on the show this week, is one of his early. Um, Cartoons that got him noticed was of two uh, Arizona politicians attempting to strangle each other. I know Terry Goddard was one of them. I don't remember who the woman was, and they're both. They've got their fingers. You know, it's just this great cartoon image of two people going at it, and boy, that that really ruffled feathers. You know, the idea that oh, boy, these politicians are—they're not actually going to try to kill each other. You know,
3: it's. <laughs> and, it's a, yeah, I think, and I'm not. I'm not sure if it's worse that the uh, the level of offense that we were talking about like, with the Oscar ceremony and everything about how easily. I, I really find people who are offended uh, very offensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it, it is because it's, uh, although we're laughing and having a good time to- talking about it, I mean, we all remember mm-hmm. what happened in France at the offices of Charlie Hebdo, the, yeah. the humor comic, and that was what Dave Fitzsimmons was talking talking about taken to a larger scale. That's, well, then there was fair. the thing with The Last Temptation
1: of Christ, if you recall. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, yeah. I worked at a theater he... when that,
0: that happened, when that movie came out, and we had uh, picketers. So and it happened. What were they that picketing? Was quite a while ago, because
1: yeah. it was based on a Kazansky's novel in which
0: Christ apparently um, has this vision where he gets off the cross, he gets married, and has That's a normal beautiful, life. Though, I mean, I, and I don't, I don't even like religious stories, but I that probably connects with me more than any religious story I've ever heard. Remember when the Passion of the Christ came out, the Mel Gibson film? You sure. know what the number two movie in America that week was? Right behind it, no.
3: Hellboy. <laughs> you can't write this stuff folks I I mean really I did find the controversy with Passion of the Christ very odd Uh, regardless of Mel Gibson's personal views he did not actually write that story it was based on a previous novel. <laughs> um, and Adapted so, screenplay. So, so the accusations of anti-Semitism within the film seemed odd, uh, since it, it it was not something he had written himself. Uh, the earlier. But what about the accusations of subpar filmmaking? Well, <laughs> are the are the fact that it was torture porn, uh, essentially? Yeah. Uh, but you know, the I actually had a friend. Uh, it was a good friend uh, that later became. Um, a pastor in Los Angeles who I had uh, got reacquainted with just as that movie was coming out, and he had been one of the picketers. And he had, of course, as most of them, had not seen it. But his, his I was, I said, how, how would you know if, you know, it's upsetting? And he says, Well, we had access to the screenplay, and I said, did you read the screenplay? And he said, no. <laughs> 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 and he said, but his he ended with, but, but God will not be mocked. And that mm. was the definitive reply. And I said, okay, well, I'm not sure I can argue with <sighs> well, that. Well, then why has God got such a thin skin? <laughs> I'm to hear more is from that. Pam.
0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, Pam is un- uh, subdued.
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Quivering sigh. Have you seen Buñuel films?
2: I do. Yeah, I have. I've seen a few. Um, I've seen, Unshan and and Dele- I can never pronounce it. Um, um, dor Yeah. Uh, yes. A uh, long time ago, though. And then I, I love Belle du jour. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's. Uh, it's, it is kind of his more like popular film. It's kind of like you know more easily accessible films, even though it does have some. Um, you know adult themes in it. Um, I think it is probably m- one of his most accessible films, and I just I love it. I have right. a,
3: a, a interesting possibly aside about the Boone Well, and it's actually was the biggest f- uh, influence on on Guy Madden and mm. it it and you could see it a little bit, but it was really. The um he uh, he apparently got a hold of a of a VHS tape. Speaking of the old VHS tapes, and boy, it's so nice, it's so exciting now with all the they're finding the new prints and restoring them and and, yeah, and making it so yeah. you can finally see what this really looked like instead of the completely blown out old VHS. But he apparently wore out this his VHS copy of it, and it was just sort of the 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 idea of boy, you could you could just go out with your friends and make something crazy. And, and it really freedom, and he found it, uh, you know, liberating this idea of of, of yeah. what, you know, uh, cinema could be rather than what we all are sort of, you know, brought up to believe going to see, you know, Hollywood blockbusters. I think the freedom that it, it, it has brought to cinema—I mean, you know, Salvador Dali was part of it, but I think it's, you know— I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm a Boonwell backer. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dolly, Dolly was a, a dilettante. I mean, you know, he was. Well, he didn't.
1: He wasn't involved with Bunuel after the first two. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. You were talking about seeking out old movies and often having to deal with subpar copies of them. Yes. Um, and that's something that's interesting because I, I recently found out that um, to sell a Blu-ray disc, you have to have a minimum amount of fidelity. Um, There's actually laws passed in favor of this, consumer protection laws, that keep people from just what was happening all the time on DVD and still happens on DVD, where they just take a file or take a video and compress it and stick it on the disc without remastering it, Mm -hmm. that to to actually call it a Blu-ray and to sell it in that blue box and everything and have all the logos you have to meet certain requirements of fidelity. Older films that are restored can, of course, get around this sort of grandfather past it. But it's interesting because that's the first time in a long time anybody's done anything to protect film lovers. From really crappy versions of movies being That's released,
3: and it makes me think going back to the VHS. You would you would pick out, a, look up at a VHS, and it would have just a little teeny bit of, of, of yeah, tape on right. there. You're yeah. like, this is not going to be a good copy. Yeah, it's yeah. a two hour movie on a five minute tape. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. I always, I, I, the Good Times Company. I'm going to go ahead and name names here. Oh, yeah. Released a lot of films that were not available in any other format and are still not available in any other format, and. Traditionally, they are the worst quality films in the world. And it's so frustrating when you finally get a hold of The Student of Prague... Uh, was a film for me with um, the Golem actor, what was his name? Um, uh, Wegener? Wegener Yeah, Paul oh, Wegener. Wegener. Right, yeah. right The Student of Prague, I finally got a hold of it, the German classic with Paul Wegener I was so excited to see it, and you couldn't even read the subtitles. They were cut off the bottom oh, oh. Uh, uh, of the German intertitles, you know, were subtitled, but yeah. you couldn't see it, so, and my German stinks. So <laughs> um, so yeah, that that kind of thing happened all the time then, and I always had this dream, that one day the president, the owner, uh, whoever ran the Good Times Company would be in the grocery store with his grandkids, and he'd say, oh, look, well, here's a collection of old cartoons. Why why we even make this? Let's take it home and enjoy it, kids. And then he would put it on and go, what a piece of crap, you know, and immediately call the company and complain and try to get changes made, Because, but that never happened. My, my my, fantasy of the Good Times company, and I don't even know if they're still around anymore. They've probably been absorbed by somebody else. It's going to be harder to get some things restored now that we're digital
1: because – Restoring it and then making it digital is is costly, so a lot of the really older films are gonna fall by the wayside more often, I think.
2: Yeah. There's a well I I don't know what the explanation for uh the crowd is but i recently wanted to purchase that movie oh the King Vidor yeah yeah, yeah. and it's only I, I mean this was about a year ago when I was looking but a year ago it's only available on VHS That's and right. there's lots as, of
1: those examples
2: yeah okay. and as far as I know there's no the the version that I I think I saw it on TCM was yeah, where I saw absolutely. it and then yeah <laughs> um, as
3: I was about to say all my all my vidos are, are taped off of TCM
2: exactly and 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 so Thanks, Bob. but I, I I didn't know <laughs> why i wouldn't be able to it didn't seem like there was any missing scenes or it didn't seem like there was any footage that was missing it seemed like it was completely restored which made me wonder why something that was perfectly restored like that wouldn't at least be available on like a five dollar dvd or something
0: mm-hmm. there's recently been a little bit of an uptick in catering like the the film speedy uh recently oh yeah came out yeah on blu-ray um, and some older films, a Willis O'Brien film called The Beast of Hollow Mountain that's been really hard to see for a long time, came out on a double feature um, DVD. So there, there has been, I, I find the last year or so really encouraging in terms of the number of products that have been reissued. Because at first, Blu-ray was the domain of the new film. You know, only new movies went on Blu-ray. But now it's been around long enough, enough collectors have adapted to the format mm-hmm. that they're being more experimental. And some interesting releases are now coming out.
3: Can we agree here tonight? Uh, Blu-ray is it though? Let's just stop. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that's not yeah. no HD DVD. <laughs> just just Blu-ray and I haven't got Blu-ray yet. I just oh, I, th- I haven't either, and I have seen oh, there's these th- these things called Blu-rays, but but uh, and they they're nice. But I, I I I always I was happy with the DVD, a good DVD transfer. I was. Me too. At, and the idea of, of having to restock your uh, your library. Ten years because someone decided something's. It better. didn't go over as big right. as
1: they thought. I think no.
3: Well,
2: yeah. there's that quote from Men in Black. Sorry to quote the, but uh, <laughs> where Tommy Lee Jones says, "Oh, I gotta buy the white album again" when he's talking about new technology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. right. Um, <laughs> <There's> <laughs> but yeah, there's there's that four. There yeah. is a new format coming out called I want it, four is in my head for some reason. It's like 4K. Oh. I don't know what it is, but it's oh. it's, it's it's ultra. It's ultra, ultra Blu-ray. Right. And HDDD. Exactly. Can
3: I can I use this opportunity to make a public service announcement? By me. Now, if you own a new TV and you're wondering why your Wonderful, beautiful movies look like bad uh, um, soap operas. Soap operas. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. (laughs) Okay, now this is actually one of the most difficult things to do because it's hidden deep, 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 (laughs) deep in the menu. You have to go on like an hour long search, but find the the anti blur feature and disable it, turn it off. Sometimes
1: it's called motion or oh, o- automatic yeah, motion or uh, L- LED it motion. It,
3: it's almost, it, it takes about an hour to find. And, <laughs> uh, a, 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 and but it's worth it. Why a, would they make it at a default? That's crazy. Yeah. It's, I think it's because we're focused in this country on sports. Yeah. And and sports the people are gonna get big for. TV because they're gonna watch you know football and it does it's great for football it makes it look like you're watching out of a window but it destroys the art and uh, of so many great films and I'm rendering them unwatchable to me I could not I cannot watch them until I find the anti blur we, we bought a new
1: TV and it had that and I was like what is going
3: on yeah, yeah. we it watched makes My Fair Lady. Oh, oh, yeah. oh and God. it was like it looked like a <laughs> high school production or something oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> PBS cool. um, I, I, I had experienced it I was at a friend's house and he, had, he was very proud he had this great big yeah. TV he had just gotten and he had um, the, the one with the, the hit girl the movie with Hit Girl. Kick ass. Yeah, kick ass. And I saw it at the theater and I really enjoyed it. I thought it looked great. And I'm watching it and I'm like, Whoa, yeah. this looks terrible. Oh, and he and he said What happened? Yeah. Yeah. He said, You get used to it. <laughs> and I said, I don't wanna get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> this looks terrible. It it, it looks laughable. It's yeah. so bad. It looks like a you know, a early eighties music video that you
0: know. Yeah, it's it's created the phenomena of you're watching it wrong, yeah. <laughs> which used to not ever be a problem. Yeah. I mean, if you could watch it, you were watching it the best way you could. Right. Now, there's no guarantee that you're actually watching it the best right. way you could. Chances are good the aspect ratio is messed up or something, yeah, that's and, and, and yeah, you're not even paying ratio. attention. But
3: that that's, that's, a, that's nothing compared to – I think about all those cinematographers – you know, going to great lengths, Emmanuel Lavesky, Uh and having people watch the Revenant with the with the blur feature, <laughs> uh, <going> <laughs> <on>. <laughs> and wondering what the well, why did this win the or Oscar? Worse, <laughs> you know. Or worse, they don't even notice. They just they're okay. so stupid
1: they don't even see it. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> yep. That's well, true. This,
3: this is like the arguments you would get in when, if you worked at a video store in the '80s or even in, uh, in, uh, in, into the early '90s and and I had to, uh, you know, this is ageist, but it was always the old people. (laughs) I don't like that black at the top and the bottom of my screen. Oh, the (laughs) letterboxy. The letterboxy, they were so (laughs) virulent, uh, anti-letterbox, and you would try to explain, and they would just, I don't care, I I don't like the... the." But now we've got the situation where they take old
0: material, like for instance a television show, and they make it widescreen artificially, cutting Uh, off the top and bottom uh, of the screen, Yeah, which is just completely mind-blowing to me that anybody would do that. It's so retrograde. It's so backwards. Um, but you're also talking about um, something else that I thought of that I just forgot. Um, well, speaking is, of widescreen, I just mentioned that I saw Lawrence of
1: Arabia on a widescreen, 70 millimeter, uh, at the loft. And uh, it. besides the fact that it's such a great film, and I could go at length about how uh, it's more than just a – epic it's got a lot of complexity to it
0: he likes your lemonade but uh,
1: <laughs> but the now you threw me off there <laughs> the the fact is afterwards after watching a film like that with an intermission with an entire audience and the, the place was sold out there's a different feeling about the experience later like you've really been through something yeah rather than just oh i watched it on tv and then i took a bathroom break or whatever really it was like wow that was an experience Mm -hmm. you know and that's something that i've been missing in movies
3: i I had the great luck of seeing it in century city right after it had been restored in the early 90s and and for a good solid week there i was it had affected me so much i i I was determined to to join the french foreign (laughs)
0: legion I, I love
3: the story that the crew was
0: not betting on whether or not Peter O'Toole would perish from the heat and die, but rather when it would happen. Um, when I saw it in 70mm in Dallas at a theater, I got so parched watching it, oh. I, I felt like I was in the desert. I didn't even live in, in the desert yet. You know, um, It's an amazing film, and we could spend a whole uh, show talking about that. Um, let's uh, talk about it next time though and let's go ahead and um, if do you guys want to do the film recommendation? thing? I already the, did my Wong Car Wai yeah. one. Okay. Do you have one?
2: Um, I saw a movie called uh, Calvary uh, starring uh, Brendan Gleeson and it's about a priest who early on in uh, in the movie he's in confession or listening to a confession and someone says I was raped and molested by a priest when I was young and so as punishment, I'm going to kill you at the end of the week. And you have a one week to get your affairs in order before I kill you uh, very publicly. And it, it sounds dramatic. You know, the rest of the film is basically, you know, him trying to set his affairs in order. But other than that initial shocking moment, it's actually a really fantastic film. I mean, it's it's basically just watching Brennan Gleason for, you know, two hours, just act his pants off (laughs) and um, a really great supporting cast and the audience itself wonders who this person is because it is discovered early on that he knows who it is who talked to him so he knows but the audience doesn't know and so you watch him interact you know and it's a small i should not add it's a small town in ireland and so you see him interact with his fellow townspeople and he knows who's going to kill him but the audience doesn't know and trying to guess, and, you know, it, it's a very interesting watch.
1: Oh, that sounds great. I've yeah. heard good things.
2: Yeah.
0: A small Irish town, boy, Brendan Gleeson was really miscast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a great
1: actor. I love Brendan yeah, Gleeson.
2: Yeah, he's fantastic.
1: So mine is an Indian film um, by a new director, Chaitanya Tamanan, and it's called Court. It starts out with this older man, he's an elementary teacher, and then he goes off and it turns out he's also a poet and he recites this very uh, revolutionary anti-government poem accompanied by music at this gathering, large gathering, and the police go on stage and arrest him and and the charge turns out to be really outlandish because they claim that he had sung a song uh, to a group earlier in another part of town. Where it included some sewer workers, and he was saying in the song that if you worked in the sewer, you should commit suicide. And then later, a sewer worker apparently went down in the sewers without his gas mask and committed suicide. And So they're charging him with that as an accessory to that. And uh, this outrageous charge is treated with complete blasé indifference by the court. They're just going through their emotions. And it looks like he's probably going to get convicted. But the point of the film isn't really what happens to him. But you get to see the private lives of the prosecutor, the defense attorney, and the judge. And it's kind of funny because you realize first you think the defense attorney is this really great guy because he's defending this person who's defenseless and is probably going to get ra- railroaded. And then in his private life, you find out he's just kind of a jerk. <laughs> and his parents are like quite, you know, squabbling and his mother's telling him to get married. And, uh, and then the, with the prosecutor, who you don't like in the courtroom, Um, you find out that she, in her private life, is actually struggling. She has kids. She's just trying to get by. It's a way of looking at the court process that's different and that you're actually seeing them as people and flawed people that are really just compromising and trying to get through it. And it's very wry. Uh, It's humor. It's got a dry sense of humor. And I recommend it highly. What was the title again?
0: Court. My most powerful recent viewing experience was uh, not a good one. It wasn't a film I enjoyed. Um, it's, um, the Pedro Almodovar film, uh, The Skin I Live In, which was recommended to me by someone. And, um, uh, I watched the film not knowing anything about it or where it was going. Now, it's one of those films that's hard to talk about it without spoiling it. And I don't want to do that. Um, I also don't think that I really should talk much about it because I did have a very negative reaction to it. It was hard for me to watch. Um, and this is coming from someone who, as you all know, watches a lot of horror movies. This was, a horror film without a single scare in it but it was let me rephrase that this was a horrific film and the uh lead actor Antonio Banderas working in his native Spanish was great he he was phenomenal and he's not an actor who in an American film I've ever gotten excited about oh hey it's Antonio Banderas but watching him in this movie I really could see okay yeah he's he's really got gravitas now he's he's aged well he's He's got a maturity as a film actor that served him very well in this film. And it was shot with the typical uh, Almodovar economy and kind of cleanliness that often accompanies his films, just clean, simple shots, telling the story without a lot of distraction or bric-a-brac. However, why are his films so rapey? Why do almost all Almodovar films revolve around rape? I'm sure he has a very reasonable explanation for that. But that was one hurdle to cross with the film, but more it's a revenge story with a very unusual outcome, um, which is a credible outcome um, to the situation, almost in the way that I would say, like, I spit on your grave or last house on the left. Um, A lot of great storytelling misdirection at the beginning to keep you from sniffing out the twist. And um, after seeing the film, I did meditate quite a bit, particularly on the beginning part of the movie and all of the things that had double meaning once you understand more of the story and the characters. So that's really all I'm going to say. So am I glad I watched it? No, actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm really not glad that I watched it. But that's what happens, you know. Well, and, there are
2: things uh, you can take away from it. I mean, what, like what you said about Antonio Banderas, that's how I felt about seeing um, Penelope yeah. Cruz in one of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, not, uh, you know, Pedro, not, not Antonio <laughs> But
0: Well, I, you know, if we go back to Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown mm-hmm. or Dark Habits, Time Me Up, Time Me Down, habits, uh, timey up, timey down those, those were films I could enjoy and roll with i'm sorry i kind of cut you off there what else were you going to say
2: oh no i was going to say that um you could take (laughs) what you could take from that movie is that you were impressed by antonio banderas acting in his native language because that's something that with pedro's films i i became a fan of penelope cruz after that because Mm, i was kind of indifferent to her because i had just seen her american roles but then when i saw her act in spanish i Thought, wow no wonder she crossed over she's really talented and
0: and almodovar has a great stable of character actors many of them who have aged right along with him who are delivering great performances and are getting all, terrific chances in his films to yeah. show what they can do um he's also got a very dark world that he Sorry. inhabits
3: I, I think it has something to do with franco but not james yes <laughs> <laughs>
1: I liked the okay. film better than you, although I, I did, I was, I found it disturbing, unsettling. I noticed the last decade or so his, he really is, fo- he really is focusing on sexual violence as symptomatic of society, and he really depicts it very, very graphically sometimes, which I, it's hard to watch. Yeah. But uh, well, I, I admired the film for its bravery and for the whole thing about gender, which I thought was really push me back on my heels there's I mean,
0: nothing else like it I can say that you know there's no other story quite like that story and it, it was a very original story that he chose to tell um, I would say that my my first break with Almodovar as a filmmaker came with the movie Kika um, where there's a, a I always call it, it gets longer every time I tell the story. I was telling it to somebody today, and it was now a 20-minute comedic rape <laughs> sequence. So next time I tell it, it'll be 25-minute comedic rape sequence that I found really, really offensive because it was played for laughs. And, um, and the, there's even a rape in, in The Skin I Live In, the first one in the film that is almost played in some ways for laughs. But there, he's aware of the tragedy underneath it. I think the way you described it was really good as a symptom of society's ills. I'm not sure I'm okay with
1: how far he goes in you know, depicting his ideas. Sometimes I'm yeah. just really uncomfortable with it, but I respect what he's trying to
0: do. Um, there aren't too many movies that I, I almost turned off. I mean, you know, and I did actually turn this film off, and then I went back and, and watched it later, deciding that I really needed to have a resolution on the story. But there was a certain point where I, I there was a scene that was so strong for me, I couldn't take it, and it had no gore. Like we say, it was it was not a horror film. It was a horrific film.
3: So, think um, it's idea for uh, a topic next time is the movies we've walked out on. Yeah. Oh. Good fellas. <laughs> yeah. <right>. Sergeant Bilko. <laughs> um, okay. I, have, I have only a couple, but yeah. they're important films. <laughs> <Yeah. Caligula. laughs> well, like Joel Schumacher said. <laughs> when,
0: when people tell him that Batman and Robin was the worst movie ever made or something along those lines, he always says, no, no, it wasn't, because that would be a very important film. And that is one of my favorite quotes about movies, and I I credit Joel Schumacher every time I say it. I said it on our last podcast. Yep.